First, I want to uh, thank Brother Burns this morning. He um, laid some wonderful groundwork, um, took some, made my job easier. Uh, I want to uh, share some things with you tomorrow morning on children, and uh, but I appreciate very much what he said. Uh, that uh, we, I, I, what I really appreciated was uh, his emphasis that we live in culture. You cannot escape culture. Um, nothing wrong with culture. Uh, it's kind of like guns, right? It's neutral. It depends upon what you do with it. Uh, so it's, uh, but we do not allow the culture to drive us uh, as the church is being driven by that culture today. So thank you, brother, for, for what you shared this morning. Um, I, I have been asked to do some, I don't like to hawk books, uh, but I'm just doing here what I was told to do, which I, okay? I always try to do what I'm told to do, just ask my wife, and she'll tell you that, okay? Um, and I'm preaching on women this morning, so. Um, this particular book, uh, Truth on Tough Texts, I know uh, if, you, if you get this, it's not only good to read, but it's good for self-defense. I mean, it's, you know, you can beat somebody with it, uh, so it's good for that. It, it would, I think. I, I think it would. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure it would. Um, so uh, this is basically a compilation of articles, uh, about 50 or so, in the first six years of our monthly publication called Truth on Tough Texts, and it just deals with uh, different portions of Scripture. For example, who are the sons of God and daughters of men in Genesis 6? You guys went to, uh, uh, went to seminary, you know what I'm talking about, and you're thinking, oh, what's this guy got to talk about? Um, and uh, there's a, a lengthy uh, article there on that, and uh, that was actually covered three months of the, of the, uh, of the publication back when it first began. Um, and just different things like that, addressing uh, difficult passages, uh, ones that have generated um, uh, questions over the years and so forth. The sequel to that was Upon This Rock, and that is still from the same publication, but they are uh, articles that did not make it into this volume because of size for one thing, but topic is another, that these are all historical. These deal with uh, issues of the Reformation, deal with five solas of the Reformation, and so forth, and are some expanded articles actually uh, expanded from the original articles. So uh, I am passionate about the Reformation and about issues uh, historically, historical Christianity, so that's what that book is about. And one more is this just, uh, this is the first time I've even held this. I, it, it, it was ahead of me. I had some copies ordered and sent here, just published last week. Uh, Taste of Heaven on Earth, which is the full exposition of what, I, what I'm sharing with you folks in brief this week. Uh, it is an exposition of marriage and the family in Ephesians 5:18 through 6:4. Uh, I hope to, in two years, publish the entire complete exposition of Ephesians that uh, took me three and a half years to share with my folks there in Meeker. Uh, but I wanted to publish this separately to make that available. I, I believe uh, that that is is so important for our day. So all of those are available and some other things out there as well. Okay, I've done what I was told. Now. Uh, ladies, I, I want to chat with you, and you're all thinking, okay, what's he going to say? Uh, listen very carefully. What's he going to say? How's he going to offend me? Uh, well, I don't want to do that. Uh, let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you. How we praise you for your word. We thank you, Father, for just the opportunity that we have to come together as a body of believers Father, what a joy to meet new believers, those you've never met before, but immediately there's an identity, there is a, a rapport, uh, not because of our personalities, not because of our likes or dislikes, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for our fellowship. We pray as we open the word this morning that it will be a time of encouragement uh, and challenge to each of us as we begin just uh, these four messages on specifics concerning the Christian home to the praise of the glory of your grace in our Savior's name. Amen. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, as we began in our first session, uh, dealing, of course, with uh, just those, uh, the model of marriage and those introductory things. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Ladies, I'll, I, I would wager, if you were allowed to do that, I would wager that how many times you've heard that, uh, if you had a dollar for that, then you know, you'd be millionaires, right? Of what, how often we've heard this passage. But this passage and the surrounding context from verse 22 to 33 comprises the most detailed, therefore the most important passage in Scripture of the roles of husband and wife uh, in anywhere in the, in the Word of God. I appreciated what J. Adams writes, this excellent summary statement of this, of this passage. Quote, The heart of these words to the husbands and wives can be reached quickly by asking two questions. Husbands, do you love your wives enough to die for them? Wives, do you love your husbands enough to live for them? Unquote. And indeed, as Adams then brings out, he goes a little bit further, quote, In most cases of marital disruption, counselors find that it is a matter of sorting out each partner's responsibilities before God, unquote. Folks, I think that is one of the most important statements that's ever been penned in our modern day. When I counsel with folks, in fact, I get to a place in counseling sessions as a pastor that if you folks are not going to follow what I'm sharing with you, if you're not going to do the homework I signed to you, we're done. Because if we, don't, if we can't sort out these issues and obey them, we're wasting our time. So what he just writes there should be obvious, but tragically, many, if not most, miss this whole point. In a world that ignores God's truth, couples are engulfed by the world's philosophies, goals, and values, and all else. So the answer to the problem is going to come only by God's order and God's design. The late professor and pastor James Boyce illustrated, just as our car will break down if we ignore the manufacturer's instructions, it follows that marriages will break down if we ignore God's instructions. And we are seeing that everywhere we look. I'll be sharing with you some statistics. That's why I appreciated the brother's statistics earlier. I'm going to be sharing some more with you. We don't want to bore you and inundate you with statistics, but they're important to understand. And I'll be sharing later on some marriage statistics. It's frightening. Why? Because the Word of God is not our foundation. So the foundational truth is for understanding the duties of each family member is to see the picture of each one of them in this passage. This is a wondrous truth. Let me share these three with you quickly. The husband is a picture of Christ. Now, guys, if, if that doesn't get you, I'll be sharing more about that this evening. If that doesn't get your attention, then... You know, I guess you'll just have to keep watching football. I, yet it's, that needs to grab a hold of us. We are the picture of Christ in our homes. As he is the head of the church and gave himself sacrificially for it, the husband is the head of the wife and gives himself spiritually and in every way sacrificially for her. Ladies, you are a picture, therefore, of the church. As the church is under the leadership of Christ and his word, the wife is to be under the spiritual leadership of her husband. And finally, the children are pictures of the Christian. As the Christian is obedient to God, children are, be, are to be obedient to their parents whom God has placed over them. So there is a perfect balance of authority and submission in what God has designed. Now, the reason we deal with the wife first is because Paul does. Why is she mentioned first? I believe the reason is, as we shall see a little bit later on, but we should note right at the beginning, is that because how she has been misunderstood and her place has been distorted. And we see that this has been a battleground, in fact, for millennia. And one of the countless perfections of the Bible is its view of women. 
Now, ladies, I want to share something with you this morning that I think is, is just staggering. And I believe it will be an, a great encouragement to you. The Bible revolutionized the attitude toward women in the ancient world. You see, one of the accusations of the, against the Bible is that it's a low view of women, that it, it enslaves women, it denies them their freedom. But such a view could not be more wrong and demonstrates the complete ignorance of Scripture and ancient history. Now, it is very true that history has not been very kind to you gals. Women have been blamed for much of the world's calamity. Long ago, in fact, someone declared, quote, if the world were only free from women, men would not be without the converse of the gods, unquote. Now, I'm quoting now, okay? I'm going to quote some more, okay? Make sure you know I'm quoting. Someone else pronounced women to be a necessary evil, a national temptation, a desirable calamity, a domestic peril, a deadly fascination, and a painted ill. And again, I'm quoting. A German proverb says, quote, There are only two good women in the world. One of them is dead and the other one is not found. <laughs> Guys, I'm going to get to you later. Uh, similarly, uh, English, uh, Englishmen sometimes say, if there is any mischief, you may rest sure that a woman has to do with it. Still another writer declares, and I'm quoting again, it cannot be denied that the devil employed woman, Eve, to accomplish the ruin of the race, that by a woman he disturbed Abraham's home and heart, cast innocent Joseph into prison, robbed Samson of his strength, brought lifelong trouble upon David, seduced Solomon into idolatry, caused John the Baptist to be beheaded, and drove Paul and Barnabas from Antioch. Unquote. Okay? Now, all of that, of course, is unfair to say the least. How many men can we list who have brought unimaginable calamity on the world? It was Adam who chose unhindered to sin while Eve was deceived. It was Cain, a man who was motivated by jealousy and fueled by testosterone, who uh, indeed murdered his brother. It was Ham who became the father of the wicked Canaanites and who had to be purged from the land before God's people could occupy it. It was men, not women, are specifically mentioned as, in, as the homosexuals in Sodom and are called um, and call for Lot to send out the visitors. We could go on. It was Achan who caused the defeat of the Israelites at Ai. How long a list then could we make? throughout the biblical record and human record of Haman, Nebuchadnezzar, Herod, Nero, Diocletian, Genghis Khan, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Heinrich Himmler, Adolf Eichmann, uh, Ho Chi Minh, Saddam Hussein, his sons, uh, and, and Osama bin Laden, Charles Manson, Timothy McVeigh, Ted Bundy, and the list goes on ad infinitum. So indeed, this calamity is not just women. But isn't it also interesting that while many men reviled, mocked, mistreated the Lord Jesus Christ, we read of not one single woman doing so. You know, and while even all his disciples, when all of his disciples forsook him, women clung to him, as indeed that they were present at the cross. You know, Greek society to which many today look as being built on, you know, monumental philosophy. I know some of you seminary guys, you remember some philosophy classes. I know you've been trying to forget them for years, haven't you? And you but you look back on Greek philosophy. It is lauded by so many people. Thomas Aquinas was mentioned earlier this morning. And indeed, Aquinas was just enamored with that. And he plunged us into some terrible error because of trying to meld Christianity with pagan philosophy. But indeed, Greek society was not much, did not have a high view of women at all. William Barclay writes, for example, the res uh, quote, the respected Greek woman led a very confined life. She lived in her own quarters into which no one but her husband came. She did not even appear at meals. She never at any time appeared on the street alone. She never went into any public assembly, unquote. On top of that, first century Judaism held women in very, very low esteem. 
They were allowed to attend synagogue, but they were not encouraged to learn. In fact, most rabbis refused to teach women, considering it to be throwing pearls before swine. Now, perhaps you're thinking, well, how appalling that the Bible would teach something like that. Well, the Bible doesn't. And the answer is the Bible does not teach that kind of attitude at all. Jewish tradition has, had drifted so far from the Old Testament scriptures and what they taught about women. Folks, did you know that the Old Testament specifically teaches that women are spiritually equal to men? Not only the New Testament. By the way, it, we, we, we often get the idea that you know, New Testament theology is unique from Old Testament theology. In some ways, that's true. And we, but a mistake we make, this is just free. I'm throwing this in, no extra charge. But we, we often get the idea that we have to interpret the Old Testament based upon the New Testament. We have to read the New Testament back. No, we have just then denied the perspicuity of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is rooted in theological realities, wondrous theology. Every doctrine of the New Testament you'll find rooted in the Old. So we find this is true, uh, this principle. The Old Testament specifically teaches that women were spiritual equals. The Mosaic law was given to all Israel, women and men included, Deuteronomy 1.1. Both were to teach it to their children, as we uh, had shared with us this morning in Deuteronomy 6. The protection of the law applied equally to women as well. Women had inheritance rights, according to Numbers 36. Men and women alike participated in the Jewish religious festivals in uh, uh, Exodus 12 and Deuteronomy 16. The single greatest spiritual vow, the Nazarite vow, was open not only to men but women as well. Numbers chapter 6 verse 2. Women were involved in spiritual service in Exodus 38 and Nehemiah 7. Nor did God hesitate to deal directly with women on several occasions. We see then the Old Testament actually had a very high view of women. The Apostle Paul is especially singled out as being a male chauvinist, right? I mean, if anybody was hung up on women, it was that Jewish rabbi, Saul. The positive proof that critics cite as such verses as 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12, let the women learn in silence and with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. A key proof that they use for Paul's problem is over in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. It is then absurdly argued that conversion obliterates distinctions between male and female. It completely obliterates any difference in roles between the two. But such teachers should be embarrassed by such a ridiculous idea. The context is clearly about salvation. That is, that all who believe, it has nothing to do with the roles of men and women, rather a spiritual reality that is true of both of us. Folks, if I may be so blunt, such critics simply don't know what they are talking about. And here's the proof I would share with you briefly. We'll come back to this later in our study, but when Paul said, let a woman learn... Now, please get this, ladies. Let a woman learn. He made a statement that was totally, completely revolutionary. As I've just outlined for you, the ancient attitude was a negative one. What he was demanding, that while women were not to teach by position, they were to be taught by application. Something that, again, shocked his listeners to the core of their entire belief system. Such an attitude was unheard of in the ancient world. In fact, because the Bible liberates women far more than the ERA could have, remember that one, the ERA? And the now gals of our own day, the National Organization of Women? They couldn't even conceive of what Paul actually did when he wrote those words. I'd like to give you another idea this morning, and that is what I would call the WMC as an acronym like all of those others. And I call that the Women's Magna Carta. Got any uh, uh, history buffs in here? What was the Magna Carta? It was Latin for Great Charter. 
The Magna Carta is the most famous document of British constitutional history. Issued in June of 1215 by King John under pressure by an alliance of barons in Rudy Mead, its original purpose was to ensure feudal rights and therefore guarantee that the king could not encroach on those rights. It was, fact, also guaranteed the freedom of the church and the customs of the towns and recognized that even the king was bound by laws enacted by the people. It later became the basis for civil rights such as habeas corpus and trial by jury. Now here's my point in all this, is that the Magna Carta is a generally recognized today as a historical turning point of opposition to the excessive use of royal power. All right, now, how am I going to apply that? Simply this, beloved, that is exactly what the biblical revelation did for women. The Bible is the Magna Carta for women. Let me draw the parallel this way. They were not slaves to the royal, they are not slaves to the royal power of men. They do not, uh, they, they had some divinely bestowed uh, privileges and blessings. Therefore, we see their biblical place. That brings us to the place of the wife according to God's order. I would share this with you, put it succinctly and biblically. As the church is under the spiritual leadership of Christ, the wife is to place herself under the spiritual leadership of her husband. I want to amplify that point this morning and just choose some very specific things to share with you and share three particular major thoughts. First, the woman's place in creation. Secondly, her position in the home. And thirdly, her priority of life. Would you ponder first the woman's place in creation? I love this picture. In Genesis 1, 27 and 28, we know it well. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God created he him, male and female, created he them. God blessed them. God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. As I read that, I hope you zeroed in on the word them. It is very profound and absolutely pivotal. Adam and Eve actually ruled Together, They have been called by some expositors co-regents. I love that term. Co-regents. There was perfect unity and harmony. That is exactly what one flesh and helpmeet actually refer to. You see, without the other half, one is truly only half a person. Together we make up a whole. Each half complements the other. That's how it was in the garden. Perfect Harmony. How many of you have perfect harmony in your home? <laughs> good. You're not liars. That's, 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 that's a good thing. <laughs> but there was, think of it, perfect harmony. And in fact, as reflected in the title of the very book I showed you, it is titled, A Taste of Heaven on Earth. Do you realize with me the, uh, this morning, folks, that's what marriage is designed to be a taste of heaven on earth. Now, the only way that can happen is if Christ is the, is the center of the home, if we're spirit-filled and word-filled, and indeed, but we have a taste of heaven on earth. God wants to recreate in our homes exactly what transpired in the garden before the fall. And therefore, while Adam was the leader because he was created first, given responsibility as the head of the race, Eve was his perfect complement to rule with him. Eve was not Adam's better half, as we often say today. She was his other half. And what a beautiful picture that paints for us. How wonderful it was in the garden. How wonderful it can be again to taste heaven on earth. But of course, something horrific happened in the garden. First there was creation, then there was the fall. Genesis 3.16, unto the woman he said, I will greatly magnify thy sorrow and thy conception. 
In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. I want to ask three questions, and to understand this, let's ask three questions. First, what did Eve do? Of course, we know that Eve ate the forbidden fruit. But the deeper principal issue here is that when she took that fruit and gave it to Adam, she usurped his leadership. That is the key to the problem. She was now leading instead of following. The second question is what was the result? Well, that was horrific. What calamity that that one single sin caused? Folks, how often do we think, well, it's only one little sin, no matter what it might be, right? We tend to think it's just one little sin. How often we think that that one little sin doesn't matter? We should remind ourselves of that one little sin of Abraham. You remember which one? That sin of impatience. And therefore, who like Eve was, Sarah was leading instead of following They conceived a son with Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden. And therefore, and what was the result of that one little tiny sin? Oh, no big deal. Just a guy named Ishmael, right? Who became the father of the Arab nations. And to this day, we know the result. Been fighting for millennia. Just one little sin. How about the little sin in the Garden of Eden? And the, indeed, the infinitely greater results that it brought. You see, part of the curse was that Adam would now rule. I want you to notice that 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 Hebrew word that is used there means to install in an office, to elevate to official position. Man and women were once co-rulers, but now the, the husband was installed as the ruler. We should also note the phrase, thy desire shall be to thy husband. What a misunderstood statement, right? That is that some people think, well, that means that, uh, you know, she's going to desire to, you know, to obey him and uh, desire to, you know, to minister. No, it doesn't. Desire actually comes from an Arabic word. And it literally means to compel, to urge, or seek control. The same word in the same construction in the Hebrew, by the way, is only used one other place in Scripture, and that's Genesis 4-7. We read of Cain's anger and God's encouragement that he should bring about, uh, bring the correct offering. The latter part of the verse says, And if thou doest well, sin lieth at the door. If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, that is, sin's desire. In other words, sin was like a wild animal lurking at the door, desiring to enslave Cain. The same meaning is in 3.16. The literal idea, ladies, was your desire will be to control your husband. Your desire will be to control him, to manipulate him, to point him in the direction that you want him to go. That was the curse. And in fact, it was at that moment that the battle of the sexes began. We've heard that that term for decades now, but women's liberation is nothing but women trying to rule and male chauvinism is nothing but man trying to squelch the rebellion. And sometimes he does it in a terrible way, and that exacerbates the problem. The home life of many Christians today is in shambles because leadership has been usurped in the home. Neither does this mean that the husband is one who acts like Napoleon, that he's the little emperor in his home. It means that he is to lead his home in accordance with God's laws as we'll see later, that she is indeed to follow and submit to him in the Lord, how important that phrase is. 
And if I may add, every man will stand before God and give an account of how he has led his family. One other question we would ask here, and that is, is there a solution to the battle of the sexes? And indeed there is. The solution is spirit-filled, word-controlled family living. When each family member knows his or her place and the duties that, and how they are to be practiced as God has outlined, it will bring back the one-person unity that was destroyed at the fall. When we follow God's design, we will return to the home what God designed it to be. We will have that taste of heaven on earth. So first, the woman's place in creation. Would you ponder secondly with me this morning the woman's position in in the home. Now, we, I'd like to be able to look at several related texts, but we won't do that. We'll just primarily look here in these, the text before us in Ephesians 5. Before we consider what this passage does say, I want to make sure that we understand what it does not say. I think there are few words in the Bible that are more misunderstood than the word submission. And I think it has been greatly abused. Let me say up front, submission does not mean inferiority. Nor does it mean superiority. It means neither one. We need to make it very clear that women are not inferior to men in any way. In fact, in some ways, they are far superior in, in, uh, in, in various areas. I think pain threshold is one. I personally don't want to have a child okay I had a kidney stone once that was bad enough they say that that's as close as we can get that's close enough for me so there's no inferiority here in any way implied by God so therefore what does this mean they are not second-class citizens and I have seen this principle of submission used to uh, for actually literally used as an excuse for abuse. She is to submit to me no matter what. No, she is not, my friend. So therefore, neither does this mean that she obeys her husband in the usual understanding of that word. I have read books and heard preachers who insist that a wife must obey, but that is not what the text says. Some cite Titus 2.5, because the authorized version says wives are to be obedient to their own husbands. But actually, the Greek here that we'll get to in just a moment is the Greek hupotasso, the same word translated submit here in Ephesians. There is a great difference between the word submit, hupotasso, and the word obey, hupakuo. Great differences. Children must obey parents and slaves must obey their masters. But wives do not obey their husbands because they're not children and they're not slaves. So therefore, the husband is to treat his wife, his loving helpmeet, not like a child or a slave, but as a co-regent who submits to him. He is to treat her as part of himself because she is. I don't know about you folks, I love J. Vernon McGee. I do, I always, always love reading him. Uh, I, I read so many when I'm expositing and preparing. He's always refreshing. He rightly comments on this principle of submission. He, quote, it is not wives obey your husbands. Submit is a very mild word. It is a loving word. It means to respond to your own husband as unto the Lord. The way we respond to the Lord is that we love him because he first loved us, unquote. Isn't that wonderful? It's a term of love, not of slavery, not of a despot who rules over his kingdom, but indeed the perfect picture. It is willful submission, not forced obedience. In just a few moments, we're going to read another text where the word obey is used. So specifically, what does the word submit mean? As I mentioned a moment ago, the Greek here is hupatasso. The root tasso originally carried the military connotation of drawing up troops 
in battle array or actually lining up ships into attack formation. From that picture came the idea of directing or appointing someone to a task and to arrange and to put things in proper order. Okay, you got that? There'll be a quiz later. Have you got that? Okay. The prefix is the word hupal that adds the idea of under. So here's the, here's the picture. To voluntarily set in order under someone. Now, did you get what I said? To voluntarily, how many times have I heard a man say, I just can't make that woman submit? And I say to them, because that's not your job. It is voluntary to rank oneself underneath in proper order for specific purpose. So this doesn't imply at all any inferiority of one over the other. To illustrate, I'm sure some of you folks were once in the military. Just because one officer outranks another does not mean the higher-ranking officer is a, uh, of a better, um, superior person. In fact, I have met many, many enlisted personnel in my lifetime, and I have yet to find one enlisted man or woman who <laughs> couldn't point out one particular officer that uh, they were underne ranked underneath, who they thought was not just a bad character but totally incompetent. But they still had to rank themselves underneath, yes, sir, I'll do what I'm told. Submission has nothing to do with superiority. It has to do with order. Without order, there is chaos. How many of you remember the 60s? <laughs> right? Without order, there is chaos. And therefore, this is central to the whole passage on the home. God, in fact, has designed and defined Roles of each family member according to whom each to whom each is to be submitted. No one's inferior. Rather, there is responsibility and a rank. John Eadie was a noted commentator on the original Greek text. He wrote uh, several commentaries on the Greek text in various books. He points out also because of the low position in society in that day, Newly converted women might tend to use their newfound liberty to encroach on their husband's position. He goes on, many such women also had unbelieving husbands, so they might be tempted to take on a superior attitude, which would not tend to win their husbands to Christ. That's where Paul's principle is coming from, the proper order. So what Paul is teaching is that the husband is the head of the wife. The word head here is, of course, critical. It means exactly what it implies. The Greek that is used here means the head, top, that which is uppermost in relation to something. Not only uh, the head of a, a person, but also the head of an animal. I mean, it's, it, it controls the whole thing. So used metaphorically of persons, then, it speaks of one who is chief, one who is therefore uh, to whom others are subordinate. They're not superior or inferior, but there is subordination. Now, some interpreters I, I found out uh, at length that uh, try to say that kafale, that the word that is used here, can also mean source or origin. So therefore, they say the only time that this is even, uh, they say source or origin, and therefore um, she is not to usurp that issue. But the only time that that word is used that way and even hinted at is the source of a river that is never used in the New Testament in that meaning. It means head. It means that which controls. Paul's meaning then is crystal clear. God has ordained the husband to be the head of the home. The wife is to voluntarily rank herself underneath that leadership. The analogy of the body is crucial. The head controls the body. She therefore doesn't act before or independently of the head. If the body acts independently from the head, what is the result? It's chaos and even convulsions. So the head must be in control. 
Folks, therefore, we see so many families today in convulsions, right? Either because there's no leadership or there's the wrong leadership. This principle is further underscored by the Greek construction of verse 24. As the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands. Now, I want you to notice that word subject. So important. Please get this. In grammatical understanding, in grammatical structure, subject is not in the what we call the passive voice. That is the subject being acted upon. In other words, Paul is not saying that the husband is acting upon the wife and making her submit. Rather, the construction here, something we don't have in English, the word is in the middle voice. The middle voice in the Greek simply means this, that the subject, in this case, the wife, the subject is receiving the benefits of the action. Ladies, it's actually to your benefit to submit. Now, why is that? You do this for your own benefit. You receive the blessings of this. She does this on her own for her own advantage. And one aspect of that is that she doesn't have the responsibility, the accountability that the husband has. Another reason is that the husband is the savior, that is the protector, the preserver of the body. So therefore, what a serious denial of God's law and what a foolish mistake it is for women to take leadership in the home. Wives often worry about certain things and end up taking matters into their own hands, but it's the husband who will answer for what goes on. I also want to interject for just a moment on what Peter says in his teaching concerning marriage in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. It's very interesting. In verses 5 and 6, he commanded, For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, if we would really take that verse literally, what ladies should you call your husband? Lord. How many of you do that? What, 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 is, what is Peter getting, getting to here? Isn't it interesting that, you know, Peter was the first pope, so uh, he was married? Well, that, that seems odd, right? But domineering husbands like to use this verse to prove, okay, woman, you know, that's not very bright, fellas. <laughs> Now, does that destroy our previous, you know, study of, of women not obeying their husband? No, it doesn't, because indeed, for even though obey is used here, it is tempered by the word subjection in verse 1 and verse 5, hupotasso. It is tempered by that word. This obedience cannot be equated to the obedience of a child or the obedience of a slave because the relationship of a husband and wife is deeper than those relationships. Plus, this obedience certainly cannot be equal to what some believe about Christian marriage, that the wife does whatever her husband says, no matter what the content. Rather, a wife, quote-unquote, obeys in the sense that she willingly submits. She willingly follows the things in the Lord. She willingly follows godly leadership of the husband whom God has placed over her to lead her, protect her, cherish her, and provide for her. Now then, does all this mean that whatever the husband says, even if he's an unbeliever, the wife must follow? I'll let you ponder that for a second. Some people say, Absolutely. I read a fellow years ago. One author gives this answer. He says, quote, People ask foolish theoretical questions on this issue. What if a husband should command the wife to get drunk, etc., etc.? That is a supposition for which the Lord made no provision here. We may be sure that the reason is that that will uh, not occur to a truly Christian woman who loves and obeys her husband. Husbands respect such wives and their religion. 
That is the reason God says such a course should win the husband when the preaching of the word fails. Wives should be in subjection to their husbands, even unsaved husbands, unquote. Folks, please pardon my frankness, but rarely in my 40 years of ministry and many years of training before that have I read something that ridiculous. I, I, I'm that blunt for several reasons. First, such questions are not foolish. They are very practical and demand a biblical answer. Secondly, God most certainly does make provision for such things here in the book of Ephesians, and we'll see that in a moment. Thirdly, while a man might have more sense than to ask his godly wife to do something that would violate her own convictions, he also might not. In fact, another author is even worse when he writes this. There is to be, quote, there is to be no limit to the submission expected of wives, just as there is no limit to the church's obedience service to Christ, unquote. No limit? As the young folks would say nowadays, seriously? Huh? I hate that, by the way. I just... but, but, but really? That's what you really believe? That's utter folly. We answer, while Christ would never command the church, of course, to an ungodly act, an unbelieving husband might certainly command his wife to an unbelieving act, an ungodly act. For example, one godly counselor offers this. Let's assume an unbelieving couple, unbelieving couple enjoyed the practice of wife swapping, as some couples do. Now consider that the wife gets saved, but the husband still wants to continue that practice. Does she submit? Of course not. And in fact, thou shalt not commit adultery. She's not going to violate the biblical mandate of God. And therefore, she would, in a humble attitude, refuse to do so. She must obey God rather than man, Acts 5.29. I heard of another husband, read another, in order to make a business deal, told his Christian wife to go to bed with a client. Should she submit? Of course not. You see, folks, these are not foolish questions in the least. Now, obviously, those are extreme examples, but they are examples that have happened. But let's just indeed look at some lesser demands for a moment. I have seen more than one Christian woman allow a lost husband to dictate when she should go to church. I, told one I had one lady come to me several years ago when I was preaching elsewhere that a previous pastor had told her to stay at home if her lost husband told her to because that would be a witness to him. That broken-hearted lady then told me that after she did what she was told by her pastor, that her husband then said that he was just testing her to see how committed she was, and obviously her religion didn't mean that much to her after all. She was in tears by this point of the conversation. How foolish and naive it is to say that an unsaved man or woman won't ask their spouse to do something that is contrary to the Word of God. Folks, Christians are asked every day, right, in our society to do things that violate the Word of God. Are we to think that a husband, an ungodly spouse will not do the same? Paul, therefore, puts in a safeguard. He covers this by saying, as unto the Lord. And what's interesting, grammatically, this means that the wife renders submission to her husband as if it were actually being rendered to Christ. Now, did you get that? She renders this to her husband as if she were rendering it to Christ. Here's our position, fellows. I'll share more this evening. But we are only the representatives of Christ. We are not the replacement for Christ. We, you render, ladies, your submission as long as we're acting Christ-like, right? As long as we are in the Lord and representative of the things mandated by our Lord. If a husband tries to lead contrary to godliness, he forfeits that authority. Now, we believe that, don't we, when it comes to human government? Human government dictates that which is contrary to Scripture. It forfeits its authority before God. Now, we may suffer the consequences for our disobedience, 
but we must obey God rather than men. One commentator adds this, quote, The words in everything mean within the proper circuit of conjugal obligation. If the husband trespasses beyond this fear, he usurps and cannot insist upon the wife's submission, unquote. Another puts it well as well, quote, No wife should be expected to submit to her husband if he required her to compromise her loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. But in all the normal relations of life, she is to submit even if he is an unbeliever. Unquote. Perfectly stated. Well stated. Still another argues, quote, Neither a husband nor an emperor has authority to command anything contrary to God's law. Unquote. So folks, I probably took more time there than I, than I needed to, but what utter folly to think that a wife is obligated to blindly obey some ungodly demand. That is what we would call slavish slavery, not saintly submission. And God demands the latter, not the former. Expositor John Phillips brings out a wonderful truth here as well. That as the words as unto the Lord lift the command to submission to a higher, holier, and more heavenly plane. He goes on, quote, What woman in all the world who has met and fallen in love with Jesus would not willingly do anything for him? Never in the Gospels do we find a woman treating him badly, speaking against him, or doing anything to harm him. The women of the New Testament loved and honored Jesus. He was so manly, so honorable, so attractive, so thoughtful, and so kind. It is the man in the Gospels who opposed him, not the women, unquote. The wife should indeed look to her husband as Jesus' representative. Folks, husbands, no pressure, right? No pressure. You are to be the representative, think of it, the representative of our Lord, your wife should be able to look upon you as if she was looking upon the Savior. Wow. I'm reminded of that often. You know, I have a problem with being this, again, throw this in, no extra charge. I, I, I had to apologize to my wife every once in a while because I get in a zone. I know none of you guys ever have this happen to you. But I get in a zone in, in studying or whatever I'm doing, and I might be a little brusque. Right? Uh, when she comes into the office, yes, you know, I, you know um, and I have to, no, don't do that. Um, and it reminds me of my position. I'm a representative, never a replacement. But what if a wife is more gifted than her husband? What if she's more gifted? What if is she smarter or better educated? Doesn't it seem logical that she ought to lead instead of him? One of my great heroes of the faith is Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he answers this with a wonderful incident that he personally witnessed. After preaching in a certain church, he stayed all night with a pastor and his wife. As he fellowshiped with him, he observed that there was no comparison between them intellectually. Now, the husband certainly was intelligent, he was gifted, he was gracious, but the wife was just downright brilliant. She had indeed earned a degree with honors in a very, very difficult field. Her sheer intellect and abilities far exceeded those of her husband. But Lloyd-Jones watched her very carefully that she was always remained submissive to his leadership. It went even further than that. She would often put ideas and arguments into his mouth, but did it in such a way that made it look like they were his. She sometimes had the qualities he lacked, but complimented him and always looked to him as the head and passed that attitude on to their children. You see, that is a helpmeet. That is one who is fit in every way. I share one more thought with you this morning, and I must move, move along here. The woman's place in creation, the woman's position in the home. Thirdly, would you ponder the woman's priority of life? Before we close, I just want to share some thoughts with you from Proverbs 31. Our son is uh, 
Lord willing, all, all goes well, and, um, you know, barring disasters and so forth, he's getting married this fall. And marrying a wonderful gal, love her name, Celeste. And one of the things that we tried to instill in him was look for this kind of gal. Look for the Proverbs 31 woman. This passage paints a beautiful portrait of the godly, capable, biblically liberated woman. Here we read precisely what truly godly woman is. Ladies, you never need ever feel stifled or useless when you look at this picture. And in fact, he clearly describes what the woman's true career is supposed to be. Let me very briefly note 10 specific characteristics of the virtuous woman. No comment, I just want to share these quickly and, and we'll be done. But first, her worth in verse 10. Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? The Hebrew behind virtuous, and ironically, is, is a masculine noun that means strength, force, wealth, or even an army. Think of that. Okay, this it is basic idea is strength and influence. So the picture of this type of woman is one who has strong moral character, a woman who influences others by that character. And the words who can find show that she is indeed a rarity, and far above rubies shows her wondrous value. Ponder secondly, her honesty in verse 11. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. Now what in the world does that mean? In ancient times, it was common for husbands to lock up the value, valuables so a distrusted wife wouldn't take off with them. We chuckle at that, but have we ever heard of a prenup, right? Same exact principle. But this woman can be entrusted implicitly. Thirdly, note her encouragement in verses 12 and 23. So will, uh, pardon me, she will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Solomon's point here is that a godly wife supports her husband in public and encourages him in private. She would not dream for a second of saying something negative about him to someone in public or rebel against him in private. Peter encourages the same principle, the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great gift, 1 Peter 3, 4. Fourthly, we read her accomplishments and several verses, and of course we won't read them here, but they show just how busy she is in verses 13 and 14, 16, 19, 21 to 22, 24 and 27. She is a busy gal. Truly busy. And indeed, to use the term woman's work nowadays is to say something worthy of a slow, agonizing death, right? But she is devoted to that. We read also, as Paul did in Titus, uh, Titus 2.5, so Solomon makes clear that the virtuous woman is happy doing domestic duties. Verse 27 sums up her busyness. She looketh well to the ways of her household and eats not the bread of idleness. While the world today tells women that their best career lies outside the home, the virtuous woman proves otherwise. I truly abhor the term housewife. She's not married to the house. I love the term homemaker. Because that's what she is there to make, a warm nest. I look at my own home and see a warm nest, and it has nothing to do with the furnace in the basement. It has to do with my, what my dear wife has done. Ladies, here's something I hope will encourage you. Many years ago, the Indianapolis Star reported the research done by a Northwestern University psychology class that found that during an average homemaker's lifetime, she performs the following tasks. Now, I hope I don't give you this, and then you tell your husband, I think I need to be on salary. She cooks 37,000 meals, makes from 10,000 to 40,000 beds, vacuums the equivalent of a rug a mile long and a tenth of a mile wide and cleans 7,000 plumbing fixtures. That's just on average. That's an accomplishment indeed. Thank you, ladies.
for your service. Ponder, fifthly, her sacrifice in verse 15. She rises also while it is yet night and gives meat to her household and portion to her maidens. So in light of all that she does, this verse reveals that the virtuous woman's concern is not for herself, but for her family. Sixthly, we see her strength and stamina in verses 17 and 18. She girds her loins with strength and strengtheneth her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good. Her candle goes not out by night. Ponderous Solomon stands and looks at his harem. What does he see when he looks at his harem? Just a bunch of lazy women. All they do is lay around, eat, sleep, gossip, try on new clothes, spend maybe a few minutes with their children if they have any, and just wait around in case the king summons them to his private chambers. Work was never a fleeting thought, but the virtuous woman is always busy. She had her own sash that she used to bind up her robe to keep it out of the way so she would not trip over it as she went about her many activities. Ponder seventhly her kindness in verse 20. She stretched out her hand to the poor, yea, she reached forth her hands to the needy. Number eight, her teaching and discipline. Disciplining in verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and in her tongue is the law of kindness. Oh, this is a wonderful truth, ladies. While up to now it's been implied that she speaks, obviously, but now Solomon actually tells us the content of her speech. It's always with wisdom. Always with wisdom. The implication, that principle is profound. It implies that she doesn't open her mouth unless she has something of wisdom, uh, wise to say. In fact, like Ruth, who's the only one called a virtuous woman in Scripture, right? Remember that? Just like Ruth, her very character, she is always speaks according to wisdom. Ninthly, her motive in verse 30, favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. What then drives this lady? What motivates her? Does she do it to impress people? Does she try to make herself look good? Does she do it just, in fact, so her family will love her? None of that. None of the above. She does it all because she fears the Lord. And finally, her reward in verses 28 to 31. You see, the world today promises women everything. You can have it all. But what we find here is the, as many women are finding out the hard way, that idea is a lie. What we find here, the closing verses of Proverbs announce the true reward bestowed upon this godly woman. Her husband and children give her the credit for all she does, verse 28. She stands out from the crowd, verse 29, and she is publicly noteworthy in verses 29 to 31. Folks, as we close, I, I want to share one story with you. One of the most wonderful things I've, I've ever read. Ian McLaren, he was a great preacher of the word, he went to a certain house one day and saw an old Scottish lady standing in her kitchen just weeping. She wiped her eyes, the corner of her apron, and when the great preacher asked her what the matter was, she confessed, I am so miserable. He said, why? Her answer, I have done so little for the Lord. When I was a little girl, the Lord spoke to me, and I wanted so much to live for him. McLaren said, well, haven't you? Well, yes, I, I, but I've done so little, came her answer. Tell me, asked McLaren, what have you done? Tears streaming down her face, she said, Well, I've washed dishes, I've cooked three meals a day, I've taken care of the children, I've mopped the floor, I've mended clothes. That's all I've ever done. And I wanted so much to do something for God. McLaren leaned back in his chair, and he said, Where are your boys right now? She had four sons, each named after a Bible character. And she answered, why do you ask? You know where Mark is. You ordained him before he went to China, where he is indeed preaching the gospel. McLaren asked, where's Luke then? Well, you know where Luke is. You sent him out to Africa from our church. McLaren asked again, where's Matthew? He's with his brother in China. 
Isn't it fine that they can be working together? And John came to me just the other day. He's my baby in the only 19 and said, Mother, I've been praying and God has laid it upon my heart to go work with Matthew in Africa. But don't cry, Mother. The Lord told me I was to stay here and look after you until you go home to glory. McLaren looked at that dear lady and said, And you say your life has been wasted on mopping floors and darning socks, washing dishes and doing the trivial tasks. I'd like to have your mansion when you're called home. It will be very near the throne of God. Ladies, don't let anybody ever tell you that the Bible keeps women down, that you've been wasted in the home because God says you are priceless in the home. When in fact, you do all this, how much more fulfillment could there possibly be? How much more fulfilled could a woman be than to obey God's standards and, as we read, be praised in the gates? Just be faithful. God will bless you for it. Thank you. God bless you, folks.